The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. You can support this series by coming to a live event, spreading the word, or making a donation. Find out more at theinterval.org. Thanks for listening. So uh, this is this is a really uh, this is a great talk uh, we we have for you tonight. Uh, and, uh, let me ask how many before before we started um, before before the interval existed as the interval. Um, we used to do our seminars about long-term thinking pretty much always here at Fort Mason. Who attended, anyone here raise your hands, if you attended a SALT talk here at Fort Mason? How many? There we go. And, and in the very beginning, in 2003, 2004, the first year of SALT talks, actually most of them were uh, in, in this building, what's now, I guess, Gallery 308, it's called now. Um, so in a, a smaller room at the end of this building. And it was a much simpler time in, uh, in, in Long Now's world. Um, you would see Stuart Brand and Danny Hillis doing their own tech, pretty much. Um, we, had, we had amazing speakers still, but it was um, a single camera at the back room. You can see these videos on YouTube. And, and it's kind of cool because um, not only does it show our rather humble beginnings and make you appreciate the multi-camera, professionally edited shoots that we have for our videos today, now, video, now available on iOS. Uh -huh. um, but, but it also lets us locate exactly when, uh, at least approximately, <laughs> tonight's speaker came into our orbit, as it were, as he sits like a mystery science theater uh, profile <laughs> through the entirety of the talk with, I believe, Ben sitting next to you uh, on this and several other talks. So uh, we, we know he's, he's been around. He's, he's, uh, Mike is... Um, has had a remarkable career, as you'll hear tonight, uh, that has tracked rather perfectly with uh, this world of networked uh, computers uh, that has gone from net to web to ubiquity. Um, and he is the perfect person uh, to talk to us about it. Uh, and uh, now, nowadays, he's at Park, and I'm excited to say that this is actually the first of uh, kind of a series within our series um, where, we're, where uh, Mike's gonna help me curate uh, folks, researchers from Park coming up on a regular basis uh, to tell us a bit more here at the interval about what they're working on. So uh, without any further ado, let's have a big round of applause for Mr. Mike Tunyovsky. Thanks, Mike. All right. Um, well, uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, so thank you very much. So today, uh, what I want to do is I want to look at how our relationship to the world changes when we're surrounded by devices, by things that anticipate our needs and act on them. So this means that it sits at the uh, intersection of several different things. It sits at the interse intersection of what's now called the Internet of Things, what's called uh, user experience design, and machine learning. And although people have dealt with some uh, subset of those things in the past, um, I don't think that they've ever quite come together the way they are right now, or kind of with the current enthusiasm, as you'll see. Um, and, uh, and I want to be clear up front. So I am neither a fan of nor a critic uh, of these technologies. I think that they're actually too complex to be reduced in that way. And that what we need to do is, uh, you know, if my message here is that what we need to do is to maximize their positive impact by actively engaging with them. 
And that's what this uh, a talk is trying to essentially start as a discussion. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to uh, talk in kind of several parts. Uh, and, and some of it will get nerdy. Uh, so uh, it, it starts with um, an overview of how I think the Internet of Things, uh, the Internet of Things devices, you know, physical things that are electronic these days, are actually components of services rather than being self-contained experiences like a hammer. And how predictive uh, machine learning, predictive behavior, enables key components of those services. And then, since this is a long now, what I want to do is I want to finish uh, by exploring some speculative ideas about what kind of impact they're going to have on us, you know, as individuals and as a society. So uh, at its core in this talk, um, uh, the idea is that everything is going to be connected to the internet. Everything is going to be con connected whether we want it or not, and that those things will all be trying to predict our immediate future, and that this is going to fundamentally change our relationship to the world. So um, a couple of caveats before I really get into this. Um, my current work on this field focuses almost exclusively on the consumer enter of things. There are a lot of things in this space around medicine, around industry that are also uh, big fields. That's not work that I'm doing right now, so most of my examples are, uh, are from the consumer side. I also want to point out that few of the issues uh, that I raise are new. You know, you can uh, search for the terms, uh, you know, if you look for Internet of Things and machine learning, they're kind of uh, relatively uh, recently popular. They're hot right now, but the ideas have been discussed for decades. If you search for ubiquitous computing or ambient intelligence or pervasive computing, you'll see a lot of great thought in that space in the last 25 years. And if you're really ambitious, you can start looking uh, into the artificial intelligence and cybernetics stuff from the 50s and 60s, and you'll be really surprised by the prescience of the people who were working uh, at that time when the entire world's compute power was uh, less than what you have in your key fob. So there are a lot of ideas here, and I'm going to skip through a lot of different things, um, and I'll almost certainly under-explain some things. Uh, and for that, I apologize in advance. But my goal here is to uh, give you a general sense of how the dots fit together rather than uh, talking about any single dot. So uh, finally, most of my slides don't have words on them. All the words are right here. Um, so uh, what I'll do is I'll make a, uh, uh, the complete deck with the transcript available as soon as I'm done. So let me give you a very quick background about who I am. Um, not necessarily why I'm here, but who I am. Um, so uh, I'm a user experience designer. I was one of the first professional web designers in the early 90s. This is the navigation for a hot sauce shopping site I designed 22 years ago. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, yes. There, there's someone else who's worked on that very product. <laughs> uh, and I bet you still have a closet full of this stuff and you don't ever use it. Anyway. Um, so I've also worked on the user experience design of a lot of consumer electronics products from companies you've heard of and I can't tell you about. Um, and uh, uh, now let me give you a quick aside. For those who don't know what user experience design is, so uh, user experience design is not graphic design, it's not interface design, it's not ergonomics, it's not industrial design, it's not product design. It includes aspects of all of those disciplines. UX design, from my definition, is a humanistic problem-solving approach that brings together the needs of people and businesses to create, or organizations, but really generally businesses, to create technological products that are valuable to both groups. It's actually much more about process than it is about making things look good. So the field is about 20 years old. I've been in it for about that time. And this is what it looked like about uh, 15 years ago. Today it's a little more complex. <laughs> uh, 
So, uh, um, here, I'll go back. It's a little more complex. Uh, but it's basically still the same thing. It's basically kind of a humanistic approach to thinking about technology. So I wrote a couple of books uh, about it, so the ones uh, on the ends. Um, uh, my, you know, I wrote a couple of books based on my experience as a designer. The one on the left is a cookbook of user research methods. The one on the right uh, describes what I think are some of the core concerns when designing networked computational devices. Um, the one in the, uh, in the middle uh, is uh, actually by um, my wife. <laughs> so, uh, essentially, I, I wanted to put it here both to plug it because it's the newest one, uh, uh, and also uh, to say that it's a family business and we talk yes. about this a lot, and so I'm really influenced by her. So, um, I started a couple of companies. The first on the left was primarily focused on the web. It was probably most famous for coining the term blog, although I was not involved in that. Uh, the, uh, the one on the right, I got uh, pretty deep into developing hardware. Today, I work for PARC, the famous research lab that brought you the personal computer, object-oriented software, the tablet computer, the laser printer, and I'm uh, as a principal in its innovation services group, and let me plug that for a second. We, uh, what we do, uh, and those of you out there who work for large companies can hire us, we help companies reduce the risk of adopting novel technologies using a mix of social research, design, and business strategy. There are several people from our group in this room. I can introduce you. They can give you more pitch. <laughs> Okay, so Park, one of the things about this was way before my time. I was explaining to somebody that, you know, this was done when I was uh, three years old, so I was not here when this happened. So Park uh, um, oh, also started thinking about what we call the Internet of Things way before other companies. So in 1971, Dick Shoup, who was an early researcher, wrote that eventually processors would be uh, essentially as common and as invisible as electric motors. So essentially what he was saying is, is that eventually, like this is 1971, he's, he's essentially saying the computers, which at that point were the size of a building, are going to be as boring as an electric motor. It's, they're going to be in everything. So um, oh, by the late 1980s, also at Park, Mark Weiser coined the term ubiquitous computing uh, to describe that exact phenomenon to talk about when computers are going to surpass the number of people using them, which in the 80s was almost unthinkable. That was, the personal computer business had already started, but it was kind of unthinkable. So this chart from about 20 years ago, maybe more than that, uh, from about 20 years ago, you can see it was made in Microsoft Paint, right? Uh, <laughs> so so, so, so in, this, in, in, this, in this chart, uh, uh, he predicted that... Uh, uh, there would be this crossover that would happen around 2005, 2006, when the number of computers would surpass the number of, of people. So unfortunately, Mark did not actually live to see this. He died like around here. But uh, what happened here? The iPhone launched. That's a, uh, so he was essentially exactly right uh, uh, about that. And we today live in the world that he envisioned um, about 30 years ago. So essentially, what we now see as a novel phenomenon, phenomenon has actually been foreseen by people in the industry for decades. The question has not been about what is going to happen, but how we're going to get there and when we're going to get there. So unfortunately, the ubiquitous computing vision doesn't happen perfectly all at once. So we've actually just started to, uh, to see the transition to this ubiquitous computing world. And as such, we're seeing a lot of bad ideas about the Internet of Things is and isn't. Essentially, everything that can be connected to the internet right now is. 
Uh, and a lot of things, that includes a lot of things that shouldn't be. There are actually so many bad ideas. There are entire tumblers that are dedicated to it. So here's one that's called, we put a chip in it. It was a dumb thing. We put a chip in it. Now it's a smart thing. And so, you know, and my favorite one, which I hear uh, people laughing, is uh, fuck yeah, internet fridge, which is just about mocking internet fr refrigerator ideas. <laughs> so, and it's actually been going for years, and it's still going. It's amazing. Anyway, um, so most of these things are bad ideas. You know, why are they bad ideas? Why are we laughing? Because, um, apart from the fact that it's funny. Uh, <laughs> because simply connecting stuff to the internet does not actually produce value for people. You know, simple connectivity, you know, it really helps when you're trying to maximize the efficiency of a fixed process, like in a business. But that's actually not a problem that most people have in their houses. You know, we've been able to simply connect various devices to the computer so you, since you could take your Tandy color computer in 1983 and turn lights off and on with it over X10. You know, the problem is, is that that wasn't a good idea then, and it's not a good idea now. Um, if you replace the Tandy with an iPhone and you replace the lamp with a washing machine, you know this story. You see it at uh, CES every year. Or, you know, my favorite is that you, you know, if you replace it with an egg carton, you still have the same problem. And it's a user experience problem. And the user experience problem is that people, you're essentially making people connect all the dots to coordinate between all these different devices that are smart and to interpret the meaning of what all the sensors are, uh, are doing to create value for themselves. You know, for many uh, just simple telemetry pro uh, products, there's so little efficiency to be had in that. Like, you've got to take out your phone, you've got to tap on the things, you've got to launch. There's so little efficiency to be had, it's just not worth it. What's worse is that you're actually creating extra cognitive load, which is exactly the opposite of what the thing is promising. You know, people uh, essentially end up feeling intensely disappointed because uh, uh, maybe even betrayed because they're actually getting less out of it than they were promised. They were promised a labor-saving device and they got a labor-creating device. <laughs> so that effectively makes most such products worse than useless because they're actually, you know, they're negatively useless. So the, um, that promise gap, at least for me, is what distinguishes what we would call a gadget from a tool. And that's why this egg carton is funny. And that is why Quirky, the company that made it, filed for bankruptcy after burning through a couple hundred million dollars worth of venture funding. So how do you create a tool that reduces cognitive load instead of creating it, that exchanges people's precious, precious time for real value? So one approach, the one that I advocate, the one that I like, the one that we're actually at Park uh, deeply embedded in, is to couple cloud-based services. So essentially things that are up in the, uh, uh, things that look like internet uh, uh, services with predictive machine learning models to anticipate what is going to maximize the chances of a desirable outcome for the users. How do you make things better for people without making them do extra work? Now, let me unpack some of this stuff a little bit, and let me talk, start by talking about what I mean by services. So I'm thinking about hardware devices, essentially physical representatives of these cloud services, um, which makes them actually very different than traditional consumer electronics. So historically, a company made an electronic product, you know, say a turntable, and then they found people who would sell it for them. Then they advertised it heavily, and people bought them. And that was the end of their relationship with, the, uh, with that customer until they were able to convince that person to buy another one. So that is the entire value of that relationship had to be packaged within the device itself, 
which is, you know, my pet theory is that that's why they used to put like heavy metal plates in a, uh, in a consumer electronics so they would feel like you were getting more value out of them. <laughs> With the Internet of Things, the sale of the device is actually just the beginning of the relationship. It's not the end of the relationship. It's the beginning of the relationship. And the physical thing actually holds almost no value for either the consumer or the manufacturer. Value now shifts to services and the devices, uh, the devices, the software applications, and you know, the websites, the apps that are used to access it. I call those things avatars. They're physical representatives of a thing that's up in the clouds, right? Uh, so I also want to steal it back from the VR people. Uh, that was totally wrong. So anyway, um, so a camera becomes a really good appliance for taking photos for Instagram. A TV becomes a really nice way to display Instagram photos that you don't have to log into every time and you can show people at a party. A phone becomes a really convenient way both to take photos and to check your friends' photos, photo streams, or Kanye's when you're on the road. <laughs> Hardware, the physical things in this situation become simultaneously more specialized and devalued as people see through each device to the service it represents. People don't care about the device, they care about the service. The avatars exist in order to get better uh, value out of the service. Amazon really gets this. So, you know, here's a telling older ad from uh, Amazon for the Kindle. What it's saying is, Look, use whatever device you want. We don't care as long as you stay loyal to our service. You can buy one of our specialized devices that we lose money on every time <laughs> on purpose because the value is in the service. But you can use some other way to access our service and then we won't have to lose money on, that, on the device. When Fire was launched, and it was originally Kindle Fire, now you know you have Fire Stick and Fire Phone, uh, you know, RIP, not really in IP. But anyway, uh, when, when, when uh, those of you who, oh, two of those who get that joke. Anyway, so when, uh, uh, when Fire was released, Bezos even called it a service. It is not a device. It is not a thing. It is a service. Amazon Dash is a service that's enabled by dedicated devices. This is a real thing. So you can buy a washing machine from Whirlpool or GE that will reorder its own supplies. It will reorder its own uh, uh, its own tide when it's running out of, out of tide. It will reorder its own bleach when it's running out of bleach. You can buy this today. This is enabled by Amazon's Dash service. And the reason that Amazon made this is so that they wouldn't have to make these devices. You know, shipping all that metal is really expensive. Why should we making it? Why should we take the, uh, uh, why should we take the hit on uh, doing the R&D for a washing machine when we can take all the profit by selling the Tide? So Amazon also, for things that don't uh, uh, speak the Amazon Dash service, they'll sell you a button for it. So here's a Tide button. This is a networked computer that you can buy for $5, whose entire purpose is to order you Tide. <laughs> Every single time you push the button, it will order you Tide, and only Tide. <laughs> Here, you can pass it around. <laughs> Don't be ordering me Tide, my... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, 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 so you can... So if you look here, you can't see... So the, the, the top one, uh, so the top one is mac macaroni and cheese. The bottom one is, uh, is mince. These are services uh, that are effectively pri uh, uh, preparing you for infinitely automatically replenishable macaroni and cheese. It's a macaroni and cheese service 
that you will buy into so you never have to think about buying macaroni and cheese again. The margins on this are insane. So most large-scale uh, uh, large Internet of Things uh, uh, um, uh, products are service avatars like this. They, don't, they use specialized sensors and actuators to support a service, but they have very little value or, or they don't even work at all without the supporting service. Like, it's just like your phone. Your phone, if you cancel your contract, doesn't really work. I mean, the Wi-Fi works, but you know, theoretically, it doesn't really work. Um, when SmartThings was acquired by Samsung, um, they clearly state their service offering up front and tell you very little about what the stuff does. What the service offers is that they will help you be home wherever you are. They don't tell you how, that's what, what, what they're going to do. What does their hardware do? You don't know. You don't care. You shouldn't care. Compare that to X10, their spiritual predecessor who's been around since the Tandy Color computer. All X10 tells you about its white plastic boxes is what they are, not what they will accomplish for you. Like, I don't even know if there is a service. Why should I care that they have modules? What the fuck? I don't, and I, and I, and I shouldn't, I did that, and I don't. So I think that the real value that connected services offer is their ability to make sense of the world on our behalf, to reduce cognitive load by enabling people to interact with the world, with devices at a higher level than simple data, than simple telemetry, at the level of intentions and goals rather than data and control. Humans are not built to make sense of huge amounts of data across many devices or to articulate our needs as systems of mutually interdependent components. Computers are great at all that shit. Now, they do this through processes that have many names, but I'm gonna lump them all under machine learning, which is kind of a big part of what used to be called artificial intelligence. Those of you who are actually in AI will go, well, you know, there's all these other, no, whatever, machine learning. Uh, so many of the core ideas here actually go back to the 1950s. And it's the basis of every spam filter you've ever experienced. So if you've had your mail automatically spam filtered, you've experienced machine learning. Um, a big part of machine learning is pattern recognition. So we humans evolved very, very sophisticated facilities to rapidly identify visual images in all kinds of uh, difficult conditions. So, you look at a, uh, so today, you look at a picture of an orange on a red plate and you can tell instantly that it's not a sunset. But until very recently, that was incredibly hard for a computer to do. Because of a combination of Moore's law and some breakthroughs, some other breakthroughs, Computers have gotten actually much better at pattern recognition in the last couple of years. So let me actually walk you through a little bit about how uh, uh, this kind of pattern recognition works. So for a computer, recognizing something starts with a process with, uh, where some basic attributes of an image are extracted, such as like the shape of boundaries between clusters of pixels or the uh, dominant color of a patch of an image. So these are called features in, mach in machine learning speak. By examining lots and lots of examples of features across many, many different images, a machine learning system builds a statistical model of what those features mean, what they represent. You know, basic, uh, so basic forms of this kind of uh, computer vision have been used industrially for decades. You know, when you buy an industrially grown orange from central California, every single orange that you buy has been photographed 360 times, one degree uh, uh, one per degree, in order to identify oranges that have uh, uh, patches on them, oranges that have blemishes on them, and uh, send the ones that do to cow feed instead of to the supermarket. Every single freaking orange. It's been around for a really long time. 
Lego has a completely automated factory that molds a million Lego bricks an hour. Not a human being in the thing, it's all robots. A million bricks an hour, they examine every single brick from a bunch of different angles, discard the ones that uh, don't work, automatically sort the rest, then they bag and they box them all, all using computer vision and robots. A million bricks an hour, not a human being steps in that factory. That is actually relatively old technology. What's new is a class of systems that understand the content of images. So they don't just look at features, but clusters of features and clusters and clusters of features. And, now, uh, and they can now not just identify an orange, but an orange, uh, uh, but a differentiated from the setting sun. They can differentiate a person from an airplane or a polar bear from a Dalmatian. I don't know if you can see that right there. It's very important to do that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> which one do you want as a pet? Uh, so, this is why Facebook asks you to say who's in an image. It's not for you. It's for their face recognizer. Now here's the interesting part. We're built to identify interesting visual phenomena. But we're really bad at identifying patterns in other kinds of situations. For example, if you've ever tried to understand someone's food sensitivities, it's really hard to extract what that person is reacting to, even if you care, keep very, very careful track of what they've eaten. We're just not built for it. It was never an evolutionarily, it was never evolutionarily sufficiently important for us to evolve an organ to do that. Computers, on the other hand, don't care. They don't care, and now that we've found uh, really good ways to find patterns in visual images, these same techniques can find patterns in everything. So instead of uh, a matrix of pixels, like you have in an image, what if you had a matrix of medical prescriptions with each row as the history of one person's prescription from the first time they went to the doctor for a problem through when they were prescribed different things to when they got better or, or they didn't? The same kind of pattern recognizing system could see a typical pattern for prescribing a certain thing, say a wheelchair. It would essentially see the general shape of all the different ways that people get that wheelchair prescribed across time and across people. And then if you saw a wheelchair being prescribed that was outside of that typical pattern, you know, you can imagine maybe like a hair, if it was a visual image kind of sticking out, um, you could identify it. That's what's called anomaly detection. And that's in fact exactly how people at Park built a system for Medicare in California to identify Medicare fraud. People are terrible at that stuff. Computers are great at it. When one of the dimensions then becomes time, and another becomes an outcome of a series of actions, you can then make a pattern recognizer that associates a sequence of things that people do with a, a set of statistical probabilities for possible outcomes collected across a wide variety of people in a wide variety of situations. In other words, because people and machines behave in fairly consistent ways, machine learning systems can increasingly predict the future and attempt to adapt the current situation to create a more desirable outcome based on it. So the interesting thing is this is, this is not theory. Prediction and response is at the heart of the value proposition of many of the most compelling IoT services starting with the Nest. The Nest says that it knows you. How does it know you? <laughs> it predicts what you're going to want based on your behavior. Amazon Echo Speaker says it's continuously learning. What's it learning? It's learning what you want, when you want it, and how you want it. Birdie learns. 
Jaguar's intelligent uh, car learns. Eden plant watering system adapts to every change. It learns. Canary home security learns. Cocoon home security. It knows you. Um, here's Fubot, an air quality service. Recognizes machine learning. Um, actually, my, uh, my favorite thing here is also that it, uh, they implicitly say that uh, um, they will recognize your kids smoking pot. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> you know, it's learning, my friends. Silks, Silks uh, uh, intelligent camera. Adapts, it's learning. Mistbox. So Mistbox sprays water into your air conditioner in order to reduce your energy bill through evaporative cooling. You'd think that's a pretty simple process. No, it's learning. <laughs> um, so a number of companies are uh, making chips that make machine learning much cheaper and much more power efficient, which means that it's actually going to be very easy to install it in virtually every device, from streetlights to medical equipment to toys. It's not just likely this will happen, it's inevitable. Here's uh, Qualcomm announcing this thing from uh, last week. So literally, there are coprocessors. There are going to be machine learning coprocessors. They're going to be in your phone next year. If they're not in your phone this year and you don't know it, they just haven't turned it on. So it's getting pretty big. Um, here's <laughs> I, I, this, is a, this is a smart all. This is a Kickstarter, so it doesn't exist. So this is. Uh, uh, um, this is a smart all AI butler. So it's the more it learns, the smarter it gets. What is it? I don't know, but, uh, but it's learning. They're doing it. So the, the, the ideal scenario that these things paint is actually really seductive. It's actually really amazing to think about a world of espresso machines that start brewing just as you're thinking it's, about a, it's a good time for coffee. Because, you know, you kind of get that coffee every single, at the, the same time every day. You know, office lights that dim when it's sunny outside because, you know, um, they can save energy that way and they know that you're okay with it. Mac and cheese that never runs out. <laughs> the problem is that although the value proposition is of a better user experience, they're very unspecific in the details. Previous machine learning systems, like I said, these things are decades old, have been used in uh, areas such as, uh, such as uh, predictive maintenance. Aircraft parts, you know, it, it takes, it's really expensive to uh, uh, take an aircraft down to change stuff, so you're going to predict when that thing's going to fail, so, you're gonna, so you can change it in advance. Finance. But they were made by and for specialists. Now that these systems are uh, so cheap and they're in, uh, uh, available for consumers, we're, we've got some big questions. Now, how exactly will our experience of the world, our ability to see all this collected data, become more efficient and more pleasurable? more interesting, more valuable. We're still in the very early days, but I want to start by kind of articulating a couple of issues um, and talking about kind of the implications of this. So um, issue one, we've never had mechanical things that make significant decisions on their own. You know, as devices adapt their behavior, how will they communicate that they're doing that? You know, do we stick a sign on them that says adapting like the light on a video camera says recording? You know, should my chair vibrate when it's adjusting to me? You know, how will, how will people or, or just passers-by, or users or just passers-by, know which things adapt? You know, I could end up sitting for a really, really long time waiting for my chair to change before I realize it's a dumb chair. <laughs> you know, um, 
how should smart devices set the expectations that they may behave differently in what appear to be identical circumstances? How do we know how intelligent devices, these devices are? You know, people already project way more smarts on devices than those devices already have. You know, think of Roombas, right? People give them names. So a, a couple of accurate predictions may actually imply a much, uh, much more better, more sophisticated model than actually exists. How do we know we're, uh, you know, how do we know we're not going really deep and homesteading the uncanny valley, kind of like go, uh, uh, going in where everything looks normal but is super weird. Uh, so the irony in these <laughs> systems is that the irony in predictive systems is that they're actually unpredictable, at least at first. When machine learning systems are new, they're often inaccurate, which is actually not what we expect from our things. You know, 60 or 70% accuracy is actually really good for a first pass of a machine learning system. But even 90% accuracy isn't enough to make a, prediction, a predictive system feel right, because it's making decisions all the time. You know, it's gonna be making mistakes all the time. It's fine if your house is a couple of degrees cooler than you'd like or warmer or whatever, but if your wheelchair refuses to go to a drinking fountain that's next to a door because it's been trained on doors and it can't tell that what uh, you're saying is I want to go to that thing next to the door, not to the door, that's a real problem. You know, for, and for all the times the system gets uh, things right, you judge it on its mistakes. And mistakes create anxiety. And anxiety is an incredibly heavy kind of cognitive load to bear. And a little doubt about whether a supposedly smart system is going to do the right thing is enough to turn a user experience that's right most of the time into one that's more trouble than it's worth. The last issue comes as a result of these previous two, control. How do we maintain some level of control over these devices when their behavior is by definition statistical and unpredictable? On the one hand, you, know, you can mangle your device's predictive behavior by giving it too much data. One, uh, I visited Nest one time in their, in their early days, and they told me that none of the Nests in their office actually worked because they uh, were constantly fiddling with them. They're, con they're constantly like playing around with them. And in machine learning, this is what's called overtraining. On the other hand, um, if I have no direct way to control it other than through my own behavior, how do I adjust it? You know, so Amazon and Netflix's recommendation systems, which are machine learning systems for predicting what you might like, they've been around for a long time. They give you some context about why they recommend, uh, recommended something, why they're doing something. But what if my only interface is a garden hose? What do I do? How do I get it to stop spraying water? As interesting as these issues are, I actually think that most importantly, what they represent is that we're entering into a new relationship with our device ecosystem. We're experiencing a sea change in our relationship to the built world. So think of a sewing machine. It's really complex, but it basically acts in response to us. Computers acting autonomously erode this simple tool-user relationship. At the dawn of computing in the late 1940s, cyberneticists like Norbert Wiener, Norbert Wiener philosophized about this increasingly complex relationship between people and computers and how it was fundamentally different than the way that we've interacted with other kinds of machines and other kinds of tools. So developers uh, who are working in supervisory control of, machine, of manufacturing machines, so basically, you know, uh, things that build cars, things that are the, you know, giant, giant robots and factories, they've actually 
they've been having to deal with this, with these questions uh, very pragmatically for a very long time. Um, now, thanks to the Internet of Things, it's actually everybody's problem. So this, <laughs> this is a diagram uh, by, the, by the great Tom Sheridan, who was a brilliant, uh, brilliant engineer, and Bill Verplank. This is from 1978, in, wh in which what they're trying to do is they're trying to illustrate four ways that semi-autonomous computers and humans can work together to solve a problem. This actually comes out of an amazing project when they were uh, in the freaking 70s. They were doing these like semi-autonomous submersible robots that would like go deep underwater, and uh, uh, they were so deep underwater uh, that uh, you'd have to control them from the surface, but you didn't have like really great control. You just have to tell them what to do, and they'd have like 1975. They were doing this. Sheridan continued to think about this because he's, uh, he's a smart guy. By 2000, he'd actually expanded that. Uh, idea to create this framework and to define a spectrum of responsibility between people and computers. So it ranges from the, the top, number one, um, so I'll, I'll read it for the folks in back. Uh, the, the computer offers no assistance. Humans mu uh, must make all decisions and actions. Um, so it ranges from one where humans do all the work. That's like, you know, you writing an essay, uh, unless you're in school, in which case you Google for it, uh, uh, or uh, you knitting to uh, uh, 10, computers doing all the work. The computer decides everything and acts autonomously, ignoring the human. That is your uh, car's fuel injection controller. So, um, of course, the goal is to get, you know, something now d uh, down here near 9 or 10. Um, and that's a kind of the maximum reduction in cognitive load. But it's, for a system to qualify for that, it needs to be very stable. Its effects its effects need to be very predictable. And more importantly, its role needs to be very well embedded and understood in society. We trust it to do that thing. At the airport, we trust the monorail computer to work without, a, uh, without human intervention. But we don't trust the plane autopilot to do that, even though, as I understand it, planes can basically fly themselves these days. It's not socially embedded yet. Predictive IoT devices generally fall between five and seven today, and probably for the near future. The problem is, is that this is the exact range where you're maximizing someone's cognitive load, because you're making them make a lot of decisions, but not necessarily doing all the work for them. So the result of the automation had really better be worth it in order for that system to work. Moreover, that relationship fundamentally undermines what we expect from our tools. Because when that tool is trying to anticipate what uh, we're trying to do and try to get in front of us in doing it, it fundamentally changes our working relationship with it. Danny Hillis of The Long Now talks about how, uh, in an essay that he uh, wrote a couple months ago, talks about how we've gone essentially past the enlightenment idea where we thought that we could understand and control everything. And we've built tools and, and, you know, we built tools in the Enlightenment era um, that reflected that view. Um, in his perspective, we're actually no longer in control as much as we are entangled. That's his term, entangled with them. Anne Galloway, who's uh, a New Zealand researcher that looks at the intersection of animals and digital technology, calls it the end of human exceptionalism. Others would say that it's actually just the postmodern condition. You know, the recognition that the complexity of the world is beyond our ability to understand and control. And we have to learn to coax and coexist rather than command and control. Because sooner uh, than we expect, 
we're going to be living with hundreds of devices and services trying to model us and predict what's good for us. And most of them are going to require our attention. They're going to want us to verify things. They're going to want us to upload things. They're going to want us to confirm things. They're going to want us to validate their existence. <laughs> and they're going to be wrong a lot. <laughs> and they're going to be annoying. If, because if you have 100 devices, and each device is 99% accurate, and that's really good for a, prediction, uh, for, uh, for a predictive algorithm, one device is always wrong. So how do we engage with this world? How do we approach wrangling all of these different tools together? Because we're going to have a lot of them. Well, you can think about working surrounded by a bunch of apprentice assistants as in a middle-aged guild. Or you, can think, or you can take an animist view and assume that everything in the world has a consciousness. Phil Van Allen of the Art Center College of Design um, recently actually started advocating exactly this approach, that we start thinking of everything in animist terms, that we start making animist devices. Um, you know, maybe not like this. Uh, <laughs> But um, I'd like to explore a, d a different uh, approach. I'd like to explore farming as a metaphor. I like metaphors in terms of interaction design. So I'd like to explore farming as a, 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 as a metaphor. And, and not just because of the, this superficial irony of using a pre-enlightenment technology to talk about a post-enlightenment problem, right? OK, yeah, woo-hoo. Uh, <laughs> I really want to create a useful way of thinking about the challenge of smart tools so that we can design a better relationship with them from the beginning, because we're at the beginning of this thing. Farming is one of our oldest technologies. It's one of our most advanced, and it's one of the ones that's been the most brutal on the land, the people, and the animals involved. But it got us here. Without it, we'd still be like, you know, pecking at trees uh, uh, um, out on the savanna. Um, so, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good metaphor. Also, let me make an aside and make an admission. So I'm a city kid. Uh, my family's been living in cities going back generations. Uh, I have not raised so much as a single edible plant or owned a pet. Uh, I have children, but I don't think it's the same thing. Um, the, the long now asked me to do something brand new, and this is where I ended up. So if this talk hasn't already gone off the rails for you, uh, it probably will now. Um, so, uh, for me, farming is a useful metaphor about how to simultaneously manipulate the state of many autonomous, independent, similar things for your personal gain. A farmer doesn't raise an ear of corn. She raises a field of corn. And she's not a con uh, in control of her crops as much as she is in symbiosis with them to some extent. She reduces the complexity of the farming process by planting many copies of the same plant and dividing her land into regions for each different kind of plant. Right now, if you think about the Internet of Things, it's like each thing that you're looking at is totally different and requires a totally different technique to work with. Every single thing is different. Every single, and you have to think about every single thing independently. That is not how farming works. Moreover, a farmer selects crops that thrive in a specific set of conditions, and which can, you know, broadly speaking, synergistically use the same raw material to maximize the value of, uh, uh, of that material in the land. So what if we had multiple algorithms that used uh, information from the same sensor? 
What if we had multiple things that were looking at uh, the uh, output from all the cameras and all the temperature sensors and all of the various other things in the environment, but we're doing different things with them. They were treating them as different raw material. You know, uh, uh, wouldn't that be like uh, a useful uh, way of, of dealing with a lot of stuff? So a farmer uses specialized tools to, make, uh, to work on many uh, plants at the same time, you know, whether it's a plow or it's a harvester or it's a scarecrow, right? This is why she chooses many of the same things, right? Because she can then use a single tool to work on all of them. So in the algorithm analogy, uh, how can we group large numbers of algorithms, large numbers of things and services and work on them all at once? She also expects pests. Right now, everyone is shocked when their smart fridge starts posting spam because it's been hacked. <laughs> That's kind of like a fungus infection, right? You know, farmers have tools for that kind of thing. They try to maintain good practices to avoid it, but when it happens, no one is surprised, and they kind of know that this is the kind of thing that they have to deal with. So a farmer also doesn't expect to extract value from the thing immediately. You know, it may take months or years, you know, if you have an orchard. Yet she knows that she'll have to maintain it that whole time. She's going to have to take care of it, even though it's not providing value for her. Right now, we expect our digital products to work immediately, or we think that they're not worthwhile, or we think they're defective. What if we design things so that they would be only be useful after we had lived with them for a really long time, but then they'd be really useful? What would that look like? I'm not even sure I know. So another aside. Let me, let me talk a, a little bit, give you another term. So machine learning algorithms are pattern recognizers, and so they need to know which patterns are important. Whenever you mark uh, email as spam you're, uh, in your email program, you're using what's called training. You are training the algorithm to understand uh, what you consider spam. Similarly, when you are uh, making a choice using vir virtually any digital device or service, you're training it. Facebook asks you to label people in your picture to train its algorithms to associate a set of facial features with the person you labeled, and of course, with the other people who you've also labeled, and the people that they know, and the things that they're doing, and the places they are, and when they're doing it, and how they're doing it. <laughs> so what happens when you train a single animal? What are your mechanisms of control? What are your expectations? Well, you expect that it's going to require time. And it will require a combination of both positive and negative reinforcement. Then you expect that that uh, thing will regularly misbehave. And you're going to have to reinforce what you teach it. Conversely, you can expect it will probably learn a bit from other animals without you having to tell it uh, everything. And its behavior will surprise you in good ways and in bad ways. What happens when you, a farmer has a lot of animals to control? She can't train all of them. You know, she can't train all of them individually. So over the last, you know, say 10,000 years, she's developed some tools. First, she selects an, uh, animals that work well in groups. So our algorithms are currently built one at a time, and the expectation is that our interaction with them will be individual. That doesn't scale. We need algorithms that are experienced well together, or else we're not hurting sheep, we're hurting cats. Next, she has a crook. Well, she's a shepherd. Um, when you uh, need to assert control, you need a clear way to do that, which works on a wide variety of animals. 
and, uh, uh, and which works immediately. We need consistent ways to assert immediate control over a wide variety of smart devices. We don't have that. She has a dog, which is kind of a smarter entity. It's smarter than the other entities, but it's, you know, it's still not quite where she is. Um, it also needs to be trained. But once it's trained, it can actually autonomously control some of the other things. Right? She can hand off, she can also hand off the work to an assistant. In farming, there are whole classes of people who work together, who collaborate, and who share responsibility and delegate responsibility for different kinds of activities that they do uh, with a single set of entities. Fluffy, fluffy entities. <laughs> um, as Tom Coates of Thington points out, today most IoT systems are actually not built for many people to control them simultaneously even though their effects are often experienced in shared environments. Effectively, what we have today is not an internet of things. We have an AOL of, we have many AOLs of things. We have a menagerie of things, not a herd. You know, they've intentionally been made mutually incompatible. And some of them are really cute on their own. But when you have a lot of them, and you have to deal with all of them individually, and all of them have to be dealt with differently, you've got a big problem. So I think in a, a thousand years, maybe a hundred years, this entire discussion is going to seem absurd. It's, it's like, gonna be, uh, it's like uh, we're going to be arguing about whether iron is a good thing or a bad thing. You know? We'll see it as just the way the world is. Um, we're going to see our bodies, ourselves, as kind of semi-autonomous components that we have some control over in an ecosystem that combines both other biological semi-autonomous components and digital semi-autonomous components. Everything is going to have some control over other things and to be controlled by other things. Some of these things are going to be smarter than others. Some of them are going to be more autonomous than others. Some are going to be smarter than us in certain ways. We're going to be smarter than some of them in certain ways. Some are going to have positive symbiotic relationships with us. Some are going to be parasites. The boundaries between our minds and our bodies, between the natural and artificial, between human and non-human, will have really been eroded. Our world will have reconfigured itself around the assumption that everything is a lot more permeable and much less clearly delineated than we've been fooling ourselves since the start of the Enlightenment into believing. Because we are not as gods. We are and always have been animals in an ecosystem. And it won't all be good. There will probably be terrible things that happen to people's bodies and their minds and their societies. There will also hopefully be good things. But regardless, this is the looking glass that we've made for ourselves. <laughs> and, we have, and it's time for us to step through it and explore the field beyond. Because we have no choice but to engage with it, to make it be what we want it to be, what we need it to be. Because it is not androids that are going to be dreaming of electric sheep. It's going to be us. All right. All right. That, thank you, Mike. That was fantastic. Um, so we've we got time for a few questions. Yeah. Um, 
Real quick, though, a quick shout out to our folks that are listening on the live stream. I hope um, some of you may, may be able to uh, send questions through. And to uh, Edward Bertinsky and his new project, The Anthropocene, because uh, they're sponsoring our live streams all year long. So um, I'm going to steal the first question. We've got a microphone floating around uh, for, for you folks to, to go next. So you mentioned, I'm forgetting exactly what you said, but you said. Um, Me too. That <laughs> You, you, you mentioned that some of the things are, we, we have less tools than useless things. I forget what word you use uh, for useless things, but I noticed the word that you used for useless things was not toys or gadgets. games, gadgets, or it was, yeah. but it was, but the point was that there, there, there yeah. are things that we can't do anything with. There are things that are, they're not actual tools. What about play? What about mm -hmm. um, things that, because in the history of the web and other sure, innovations, sure, sure. that's, Engaging with that has, has advanced things a lot. What are your thoughts for, on that? For things that uh, promise uh, efficiency, play is not a good end state. Right. For oh, things yeah, sure. that are intended as toys or as games or as uh, entertainment, um, efficiency is not that important. And uh, if they don't promise that that's what they're uh, doing, it's great to uh, have the opportunity to play. And play can be, you know, any number of things. You know, it can it can be literally like a toy, or it can be, you know, for some for somebody writing software. Um, but if what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to like accomplish a thing that it's, it's saying that it's going to do for me, making me do that, the, uh, that uh, is actually making it worse than useless for me. That's my point. But but as far as uh, do you see things that are out there that are. I don't know whether sure. there's augmented reality kinds of things uh, that are starting to engage so that same kind of framework. Or toys are one of the first places that uh, are uh, that a lot of technology is really um, a lot of like physical uh, technology is really tested out in. Just as like in media, porn tests out all the technology first in uh, kind of ro uh, uh, kind of like consumer robotics as toys. So you know if you if you think about like a tickle me Elmo extreme. Which has been around for about ten years. That's, that's part of the product name is Extreme. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so to, uh, it's a robot. It's a robot that's a uh, that's a red fluffy toy robot that uh, uh, has all these behaviors. Right now, they don't do machine learning, but they can. They will. Um, they will do it for you. Like that's essentially what the um, a Furby was simulating. That's what uh, uh, the Pleo dinosaur was simulating. Yeah. Now that's going to be uh, a, a part of, uh, of everyday toys. They're actually literally going to learn instead of simulating. Um, so I think that that's definitely going to be part of it, and that's going to be fun. It's going to be uh, it's going to be uh, uh, great, and the, you know, unpredictability in a thing that you think is kind of like somewhere between a a, a pet and a game is great. Unpredictability in a thing that you think uh, is uh, uh, you're using to accomplish a task, not great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All right, do we have that? Uh, there we go. First question. Yeah, it should be. Just uh, hold it really close to your. Uh, oh, okay. There we go. Um, so, so if we're farming algorithms right now, I think we're getting our seed from Monsanto. Um, we've yeah. got, you know, we. We're not in control. Well, we're actually getting our actual seat from Monsanto also. Just remember that. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> but, you know, right now, you know, the reason I don't have an Amazon Echo is because I don't really want Amazon listening to everything I say in my house. Me, um, me too. How do we as consumers, you know, get control over all these smart things that are going to be in our house watching us? 
Um, I think that's a very challenging question. I think the important thing is to uh, um, understand something about what the, uh, they're doing and uh, how they're doing it, and then uh, right now uh, to not lock yourself too into them and also to delete your history often. So like I, uh, I use Google's mapping technology. I delete my location history once a month. I, uh, I use Waze. I don't have an account on it. I uh, use uh, uh, I use Facebook. I've turned off a lot of the stuff on uh, on that to the extent that I can. Um, so uh, I use Twitter, and I'm assuming that someone's data mining me. And uh, um, so part of it is 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 just kind of. Uh, uh, selectively choosing which things you opt into based on how much value they give you. Um, and uh, uh, another, uh, another part is also understanding that uh, uh, I think for the most part they're not um, malicious. So they don't mean to make things bad and they will make mistakes. They don't mean to make things bad and so you have to treat them as mostly benign. It's like having a puppy, right? Uh, it's like they're mostly benign and so the puppy ate my credit history again. <laughs> uh, that's all it did. That's good. Uh, uh, um, it's got another end that can also do something with credit history. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, so that's 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 my personal answer. I I think it's a I think it's a really uh, I think it's a conversation that we have with technology every single day, and that we should just continue to have. Not be afraid of it, just remember to have the conversation. So thanks for your talk. I'm, I'm not quite sure after hearing what you say um, whether or not you are a believer or a advocate for general purpose learner, uh, which is you know, obviously a highly debated contest between um, machine learners, uh, machine learning sci data well, scientists so, so, and whatnot. So is your question, am I advocating for machine learning? Do you believe in it? Uh, well, no, general purpose learner. Meaning oh, oh, uh, from A to B, you can find whatever algorithms actually best So, so do, are you asking whether I'm a hard AI proponent, Would, that I believe that there's going to be a, a general purpose uh, mind that is equivalent to our uh, kind of cognition? Or, uh, no, not, uh, not exactly. What you say before was we live in a world of menagerie of algorithms yeah. where there's no connections and there's no group and therefore Right. The task of selecting which algorithms to pair with mm -hmm. could be left off to a an algorithm by mm -hmm. itself, which could actually be yeah. another task the, the by the machine. Algorithm. Right. So if if there is such an algorithm, then that will be a general purpose learner, right? Not necessarily. It can be very special uh, specialized to your house. It can be specialized to the APIs that the various uh, uh, devices uh, uh, speak and. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, it can be uh, essentially one that uh, does uh, automatically the kind of things that I do to anonymize things or to kind of tailor the data to be, uh, the, the training data to be more uh, uh, in line with my values, uh, to be more in line with my, uh, with my interests. It doesn't have to be something that's uh, simulating me. So you still advocate for human to be the supervisor yeah. of that process. Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, what that looks like, I don't know. So, so if you, um, there's a book called uh, The Master Algorithm that yes. is by Pedro, can someone Domingos. remember? Oh. Domingos. Anyway, he, uh, yeah, uh, uh, so, so he talks about that. So he essentially says like, we, we're gonna need a master algorithm. Uh, uh, 
I don't like the metaphor of a master algorithm. I like the metaphor of a dog algorithm. Uh, 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 you know, I think it sets the power structure correctly. Um, but, uh, but I think that, that there is going to be uh, an opportunity there. What that thing looks like, I don't know. I, uh, I, th I, think, I think we need to be able to, uh, uh, I, I don't think that all the various companies that are making all the animals in the menagerie are actually ever going to get together and make a sheep. That's just not going to happen. Uh, eventually, one of them will eat the others, and we'll have like a bunch of rhinos. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then we're just going to have to be rhino farming. But uh, until, until that happens, we kind of need, uh, we're going to have something that is uh, going to be, uh, you know, hopefully we can make something that can help uh, uh, us manage the rest. Mike, how, how are things advancing right now between academic research, private research like you got, or well, that, no, uh, and, I mean, and, and startups versus big corporations? What's yeah. sort of the ecosystem of the innovation right now, would you say? So, so the ecosystem, the uh, ecosystem of the innovation is that uh, uh, academic departments that get really good at this get bought by Google. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then they, uh, or by Amazon, or, uh, uh, or Apple, or uh, hopefully not Palantir. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, um, so uh, uh, I mean, I think uh, we do a lot of it as a, uh, essentially independent uh, research lab. And so the way that PARC works, and just to give you some, a little bit, a tiny bit of insight. So uh, we're uh, wholly owned by Xerox, but we don't just do uh, research for Xerox. Like I said, you can hire us, you can hire PARC. We do a lot of machine learning, we do a lot of Internet of Things stuff. Um, we have essentially three clients. We have Xerox, we have the US government, specific, specifically government grants from DARPA and ARPA-E and places like that. And we have private companies. We work basically, and by private companies, I mean generally like Fortune 100 companies. So those are our three classes of clients. And we're doing work for all of them all the time in machine learning. So like, you know, we did work for the state of California. Um, uh, and uh, uh, there aren't that many places that, uh, uh, that work the way that we work. But I think that that's, uh, um, uh, but I think that there are, uh, a lot of things that are very rapidly coming up from academia, and then they get very rapidly uh, commercialized. And um, uh, I mean, basically, any graduate student that has a PhD in something that resembles machine learning gets snapped up by you know Facebook, Amazon, Apple, you know what Bruce Sterling calls the stacks, yeah. right? You know, one of five companies. And they're the ones that are, they're the big, they're, they're, the, uh, they're the charismatic megafauna in my uh, image. Right, right, yeah. right. So, so we'll take one more question in a second. I want to ask you a quick question. We don't have your book here tonight, but um, tell us for a second, um, what is your book? I know your book gets used as a textbook in a lot of um, right. these programs. And, and also maybe just a quick couple reading list if, uh, that you'd recommend if folks want to follow up with more to learn more tonight. So, so I, think, I think I should actually like tweet out the reading list. I have little kids. I don't read anything anymore. Uh, uh, 
We can do that. We'll uh, we'll, so, we'll echo it. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but tell uh, us think, about your book. So, then. so um, observing the user experience is a series of uh, uh, essentially it's a cookbook for methods uh, to understand how people experience technological products. Uh, the second edition was revised by my brilliant, lovely wife, uh, who rewrote most of it uh, because I, you know, uh, she's smarter than me a lot. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, smart things is uh, now slightly dated, I have to say. It's a, I still think a lot of it is relevant because I wrote it. Uh, but uh, it's, um, it's essentially about kind of the um, kind of conceptual infrastructure of the talk that I gave. Like this specific thing isn't going to be in there because the book is uh, six years old. But um, a lot of the ideas that, uh, that framed this are definitely in it. Um, and uh, um, again, Liz's Designing Connected Products book from O'Reilly is a great book. Uh, I uh, happened to see drafts of it early on, uh, and so that's uh, yeah. So so that's uh, I think a really good how-to book. In terms of thinking about the implications of this stuff, the kind of the broader idea. Uh, so the master algorithm is a pretty book, good book. It came out last September. Um, let me th uh, let me think if I can think of uh, we, we can uh, Bruce Sterling's IoT kind of uh, uh, pamphlet slash booklet that he wrote last year was really good um, in terms of um, uh, like his somewhat critical perspective uh, on this. I think it's a very uh, uh, good critical perspective. So cool. I, I can make it great. I can recommend those. Do we have we have one more? There we go. One last question yeah. here. So as we uh, outsource a lot of our experience with things that we're going to be interacting with to these algorithms, how do we manage the loss of uh, serendipity or the sort of outlier things that we would actually like but now we're not seeing because it doesn't really fit the profile, things are regressing to the mean? They're going to simulate serendipity for you. <laughs> uh, so uh, <laughs> that's, that, that's the kind of like... Uh, Flip answer. I mean, I think that uh, I think that's an issue. I think that there is this uh, this uh, this issue of kind of the Disney worldification uh, created by these things, where uh, essentially uh, because uh, they uh, create experiences that are uh, based on the mean or some variant of the mean, because all of them do kind of uh, 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 make a model of you uh, uh, to describe like how you are different than the mean and then they try to give you your own kind of version of the mean. But they still do t t uh, uh, tend to do that. Um, I, th uh, uh, I think um, that's going to be uh, a, essentially a question for agency, for like what people uh, uh, want to do with their time and their lives. And uh, uh, that's going to be, I think, an opportunity. Uh, uh, because, I, like I said, I think, you know, I'm of two minds here. Actually, I'm, I'm of one, one mind, roughly, that a lot of these, these things, when they work, they're going to be really useful. They're going to be really, really good. They're going to make these things that are really annoying to us not be annoying. You know, they're going to make those routine shopping trips where we're like, oh, crap, it's like 1030, I'm out of diapers. They're going to make that go away. And, uh, uh, and maybe you love it when you have to do that. A lot of people don't. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, um, 
so that, that will theoretically give you more time to watch Game of Thrones or whatever. Uh, uh, but but I think that the, uh, that uh, it's going to be up to us to. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a non-answer, and I'm and I'm sorry, but like I think it's going to be up to us uh, uh, to really utilize them in ways that they retain their utility, but they don't cross over into uh, kind of blanding out the world. So, thank you. Okay, before we wrap up, um, we've got some other uh, park talk. I think it's going to be months in the future probably. Yes. Give us a little teaser on what so, some of the other things you guys are working right. on that we may be hearing about okay. here. So I'm going to give you uh, uh, two things. Uh, we're probably going to talk a little bit about uh, printed electronics. So mm. uh, we are currently developing a set of technologies that fundamentally uh, 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 do away with the traditional me means of making electronics. So the way that electronics are made right now, they're like etched in silicon, and you have all of these different, uh, these different processes that require a giant fab. What we're doing is we're essentially using uh, conductive and semiconductive and resistive materials to print logic, to print batteries, to print displays, to print sensors, to print actuators, uh, uh, using things like inkjet printers or um, uh, essentially giant gravure printers like the kind that, you, uh, that newspapers are printed on. Um, so what we're doing is we're essentially recreating the way electronics are made in these ways that are incredibly cheap and incredibly, uh, 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 and, and actually because we use a lot of like kind of or organic uh, semiconductor materials, they're, they're actually like roughly speaking better for the world, although you know, it's still electronics. Um, and I think they're actually really interesting. Uh, like they're now allow us, allowing us to do things like uh, uh, wrap an airplane uh, in a giant sensor uh, uh, grid uh, that's a giant sticker. Uh, and so that's pretty cool. Uh, and I think I saw that at Burning Man, though. No. So uh, not that airplane. Uh, not that airplane. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, also, we're doing a lot of really interesting stuff around um, health, uh, health analytics, around essentially uh, utilizing uh, what is called the um, uh, data exhaust that happens in the uh, uh, in the data world, uh, where uh, uh, a lot of stuff happens in a hospital. A lot of people are kind of taking a lot of a lot of data, uh, a lot of data down, uh, uh, but they never have any time to correlate that data across a bunch of different things to understand uh, uh, symptoms and uh, uh, cures for things that. Uh, um, uh, may be non-obvious unless you look at this enormous set of data all at once. So we're working on that stuff. It's pretty cool. Cool. And uh, actually, Alexander Rose, our executive director, is going to be speaking down at Park uh, yes. at the end of uh, next month. June. So we'll yes. be yeah we'll be tweeting about that. So um, yes, we'll please, also please tweet out some other things. Yeah. So um, Mike, thank you. This is a long now challenge coin to Ooh. thank you for. Your oh, fantastic so, so. talk. Was that a good... It's not smart. It's dumb. Thanks for listening to The Conversations at the Interval. To find out more about our series and Long Now, go to theinterval.org or longnow.org. Thanks again.